Whew. Sunshine, man, I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted. We've been hitting it pretty hard. Yeah, totally agree, Jello. totally agree. Hey, why don't we take a little break, and uh, do you want to answer some listener questions? That is a good idea. We've got many listener questions building up, so why don't we rattle through a few of those, but make this an intermission episode, and then we can spend some time with our kids on spring break. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. Hey, before we get to that, though, what was the deal with your microphone on episode 43 <laughs> with the F5, dude? Dude, totally sounds like I dialed in from the moon. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, so Mia culpa on that one, the audience there. Sorry, I uh, had a switchology error, as we like to call it in the cockpit. So fortunately, I got that hopefully unscrewed and we're all set now. Okay. Uh, speaking of tone, Jello. Uh-oh. So uh, when you were talking to Cosmo and asking him some questions, there's a little hint that Rio might be kind of a second-class citizen. Yeah. Any thoughts? Yeah, I noticed that as well. I, You know what? This reveals for me a blind spot that I didn't realize I had because I guess I, I definitely termed it in such a way like, hey, Sif, you're the man. Hey, Cosmo, mm, sorry for you. <laughs> and, and I always say on this show that we are a team and each is important and valued. Yeah. And I guess being single seat all my career and also knowing that I can't think of a single pilot who was disappointed that he wasn't an NFO, but there are many NFOs that wanted to be pilots. So I guess I subconsciously think of them as maybe less good and that is not right. And so to all NFOs and Cosmo, I apologize. That is not necessary. You know, everyone has an important job to do and not everybody can do every job. So yeah, I came across a little wrong there and I guess I didn't realize I felt that way. Yeah, no sweat. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you. Same sentiment. And that uh, to me, one plus one almost always equal two when it came to flying both in the S3 and also in the F-18F. So I'm with you. Yeah, and sometimes more than two if you really had a particularly good NFO. And I've heard some people say that at least we treat them with any dignity. Apparently other branches, and I won't mention, but they really don't <laughs> regard their non-pilots very highly at all. So I, yeah, yeah me a culpa on that one. But Well, nah, it's mi- minor detail. Um because, yeah, it didn't sound that bad, honestly. But, yeah, when I was at Air Force Test Pilot School, I was talking to some of the backseaters, and uh, I think the quote was, self-loading baggage. Ouch. Unfortunately, I didn't say that. But anyway, so, but regardless, that's not how the Navy operates, and let's move on. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, I thought we'd cover a few questions today, and then we can play the air crew interview I was a participant on back in early January to round this out. And then we'll be back in about 10 days as normal for a regular upcoming episode. So why don't we get straight to it? What, What do we got first? Sounds good. So we got a question here from Peter Lee, who is a Patreon division lead. And he asks, any cool stories while flying a jet through civilian territory slash airspace? I'm guessing there must have been other airline pilots or ATC folks who are also fighter jet enthusiasts, and maybe they say what's up on the radio or dip their wings to acknowledge you. Uh, Yes. Well, let's see. I flew a jet, Sunshine, I'm sure you did too many times, from the West Coast to the East Coast to deliver it to a squadron in the end of our jobs. And I stopped once in Aspen, Colorado, and drew a bit of a crowd because jets don't go in there too much. And then I stopped in Des Moines once and saw my buddy Rob Kibbe from the Muscle Car Place. He was with us at the end of 2018 for our end-of-year summary show. But to Peter's question, I think the only time I really had a quote-unquote what's up was a time we tried to land somewhere else on the East Coast, and we ended up ducking into Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Oh, okay. A lot of golfing. Yeah. As we were taxiing in, somebody on the radio said, oh, hey, nice airplane. You want to trade? And I think he was like in a little Cessna 172. (laughs) But when you're just flying along from west to east or vice versa... Typically, we, Sunshine, as you know, are on UHF frequencies in the 2 to 300 mm-hmm. megahertz range, and all the airliners are in the VHF frequency range in the 118 to 135-ish megahertz. So we don't generally talk too much to them, but if you pass closely enough, and I do this now in the airline capacity, if I happen to see a military airplane, I always take an extra look and just think of the good old days. I don't know. How about you? Yeah, so for me, uh, when I'd fly into smaller airports on a cross-country, so delivery flight, specifically Huntsville, Alabama, I remember rolling in a couple times, and the 
the tower and the ground guys were just awesome. Very laid back, very uh, Southern polite, if you will. And they'd say, hey, how fast can you bring that into the break and, or the overhead, <laughs> I guess they call it. And I said, no, 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 I have rules I got to follow, you know. So um, I noticed the smaller airports talking to air, con- uh, air traffic control, also talking to tower and talking to ground. They were usually very accommodating for any kind of a within regulation recovery that I wanted to perform and also for the takeoff. Yeah. So a lot of good times there. The only time that I've had a buddy in Comair, it was actually on deck. It was in BWI and we happened to be up uh, ground and he actually said, hey, push cheerleader. So that would be the frequency two, four, six, eight. Uh-huh, and we had a chance to chat real briefly, but uh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. So, but traditionally you're right. The, we'll stay on uniform. They'll stay on Victor and we kind of keep our side of the fence. Yeah. And also, there are many people who have gotten themselves into trouble by saying, oh, how fast do you want me to come in the break? And the tower says, yeah. oh, as fast as you want. And that's all fine and yep. good, except someone else sees it and you get into trouble. But yeah, I flew into Southern Oregon one time and my family was waiting and I called the tower and I was like, hey, do you guys have an overhead? And he said, no, but you can make one. <laughs> so I did the standard 1,500 feet or so, 350 knots and didn't get in trouble, thankfully. But yeah, that's pretty cool. Hey, Sunshine, Peter continues. I've seen YouTube videos showing F-18s and other jets parked in civilian airports. Is there a reason why F-18s would land or take off from civilian airports other than for refueling or air shows? Well, so uh, great question, Peter, for both of them. And I don't know about you, Jello, but I pretty much, that's the only reason I would land at the, an airfield was for fueling as I'm traveling cross-country. Right. And there's another time, actually, when I performed a three-ship flyover of a, of a Navy football game. So that would have been at, back in Annapolis. So we landed and kind of staged ourselves out of BWI or Baltimore, Washington International. And it was, uh, it was pretty epic, actually, feeling, you know, a lot of gusto as you're uh, taxiing the three-ship back from the active duty runway back to park at the FBO. And we taxi by one of the big commercial air terminals. And you can see a bunch of people kind of with pressed f- flesh, we'll call it, up against the glass, right, as they're looking uh-huh. out and kind of waving all that. So it's a pretty good feeling. How about you, Jello? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, let's think. I don't know. I haven't been to too many... Small ones other than, like you said, uh, the occasional air show. I flew into South Lake Tahoe once to be a static aircraft for an air show they had there, and then just other places to get gas. But also, we can use civilian airports as emergency airports, uh, which was the case at Myrtle Beach. It wasn't so much an emergency, but our primary destination was closed, so we just had to divert in there, and it was uneventful. All right. Gotcha. Next up is Scott Morris, who, by the way, is part of our team now. But he submitted this back in September, yeah, for sure. And before he joined us in September, he submitted several part questions. I think we can summarize it by saying he wants to know for all the F-18 carcasses, as he calls it. Ouch. A little crass, but yeah, that's anyone who's been to North Island where you and I used to work at the depot. You've seen aircraft out there in various states of repair. He wants to know, are they used just for parts or will they ever fly again? Uh, Do you track costs per aircraft or did you average things out by the unit? And how do you know which ones to save, which ones to keep? And then he asks about corrosion, too. So let's let's hold on to the corrosion for now. But, Sunshine, you and I effectively had the same job. In fact, you took it for me when I retired. Uh, how do they decide what happens with all those aircraft out there in the boneyard, as we sometimes call it? Yeah, so they'll look at the return on the investment. So we have a, a specific competency core, a group of folks that are trained in um, – Business Financial Management, or BFMs, and those folks would track not only the cost, but also the schedule time required to bring that aircraft back up to readiness levels that we want. So it's not an average, if you will, but they'll look at it unit by unit, and they'll do something called a Bureau bureau Number Review or BUNO Review, and that's where they'll look at the aircraft and figure out, hey, is there enough return on the investment when we put in these this money and this time into these new parts for the aircraft? We get back a proportional amount of capabilities. So they have something called Beyond Capable Maintenance, that's BCM, and they have BCM levels of, hey, this is going to be a little too expensive. We don't have the right number of parts. This is kind of outside of our doctrine or, you know, it's just not worth fixing it. So they have a very codified system on how to analyze the metrics to figure out whether they want to fix the jets or strike them, as they call. Right. Now, some squadrons, though, Sunshine, have different lots of aircraft, and maybe there's not that many of those. And so I can recall instances where there was a certain aircraft coming through maintenance, and everybody said, look, this thing is beat up. It's got too many repairs it needs. But someone said, yeah, but VFA XYZ needs this because they can't just have 
nine of one kind of airplane and one of something totally different because the engines could be different, the flight controls, the hydraulics, a lot of different things. Well, maybe not the hydraulics, but you know some of the different components. And then you increase their cost per hour if they have to maintain different sets of equipment and different parts. And so we sometimes had to send aircraft back to the fleet because squadrons were flying them. Yeah, great point. That configuration management is a huge piece, especially as the Navy has divested itself of the legacy Hornets, right, and giving them all at least the best of the breed, giving them over to the Marine Corps. Now the Marines, each squadron by squadron, has to deal with X amount of lots of different lots. Right. So that's a great point, Jello. And the yeah. training squadrons will have the whole rainbow, but a squadron generally would like to have within one or two lot numbers of each other, just because of that commonality. Now, I can recall also discussions with Commander of Naval Air Forces because they would be involved in that too. Hey, you know, you don't need to fix that one because this squadron is going to transition to the Super Hornet. And so that provided some flexibility as well. Yeah. So uh, when you talk about the chief, you could also, or the air boss there, the big air boss, you could also think of kind of Naval Aviation Enterprise, right? And there's that whole uh, transition, if you will, of the, the Navy out of the legacy business. So they're going to look at a readiness risk. They're going to look at long-term cost versus the capabilities, advantages to keeping those, those uh, older birds around. And then, as mentioned earlier, because the uh, Navy divested itself, the Marine Corps jets, I'm sorry, the Navy jets, the best of the breed of those kind of used, if you will, Navy jets will go to the Marines. Right. So it's all, all good points to think about. And then just one more thing. Uh, circling back a little bit to the individual analyses of the aircraft as they go through the depot. So they have a pretty fancy computer program. I believe it's called Concerto. And it's uh, it's based on that critical chain project management. So basically, not only are you looking at costs, which is just going to be dollars, right, by the BFMs, but they're also going to watch as this airplane rolls through the depot, and they're going to clock it at different in instances or different gates, right? right. And they're going to say, hey, how long does it take to do this part? You know, because time is money, right? You're paying folks, you're paying multiple workers, multiple hours. So that schedule is very instrumental into figuring out the uh, total cost of the aircraft repair. That's right. Now, Scott goes on to ask about the corrosion inspections and the washdowns because we live so close to the ocean. And Scott, there are different inspections. For example, every seven days you have to do something. And then every 14 days you have to do something a little more intrusive. And it just keeps going in increments like that up until I want to say sunshine. It was like a 56 day or 58 day. And that, that was, sounds right. yeah, that was no kidding. Peeling back the protective paper that they had over the anywhere water intrusion could take place to make sure that in fact, water did not intrude. And then they would wash it down or relubricate and just make sure it was in the proper state. But then as I was leaving, and I think you finished it up, they built some climate control storage effectively, a lot like people can get for their goods. And they ended up putting all the aircraft in there. And as I understand, they can keep the humidity, the exact level, the temperature right where they want it. And so it really knocked down some of those recurring maintenance costs and uh, time. Yeah, that uh, climate control is kind of a force multiplier, if you will, for preservation. Absolutely. Cool. All right. All right, cool. Should we move on to the next guy here, David? Sure, go for it. What do you got? Okay, so David says, having experience, as in we are having experience flying both the F-16 and the F-18, he was wondering if we could enlighten the crowd on the difference between alpha and G-limited maneuvers in terms of dogfighting. He goes on to say, I've read that the Hornet can achieve a higher angle of attack when compared to the Falcon, or the Viper, I guess, right? As, and then the Viper is very good with its nine Gs as compared to the Hornet's seven and a half G-limit. So he's just wondering how these two alpha versus G limits translate into dogfight capabilities. Right. Well, there's many parts to this, David. First off, the G limit will affect the performance of the aircraft. Now you have turn rate and turn radius. And Sunshine, I don't know if people will have seen it by the time they hear this, but you and I are working on a deep dive on many of these concepts. So we can yeah. leverage off of that. I think it's probably going to come after they hear this. But there are times you might want to do what's called a one circle or a two circle fight. And we will cover all that. But in a one circle fight, radius is more important. In a two circle fight, rate is more important. And so the G that you can pull is one thing, but also the radius is important. So it's, it's hard to just simply say the F-16 has an advantage because it can pull one and a half more Gs in the F-18 because it also comes down to the air crew, the loadout, the altitude, the airspeed you arrive at when you start the fight, and what happens in the fight. If you can get an F-16 slow, then it's going to have a limited angle of attack ability because it cannot pull beyond its 24-degree limit like the F-18 can, can pull virtually unlimited. 
And so what fight you're in, it just depends on what you're doing. We have an airspeed called corner speed. And corner speed, Sunshine, you can tighten me up if I get this wrong, but it's basically the speed where instantaneously you can pull the max G and get, I want to say it's basically the best of everything. But because when you pull so many G's, you're going to bleed your airspeed pretty quickly. It's almost instantaneous. And it's because of that, it's more of a theoretical performance than it is actual. But the point being is that above that speed, let's say that speed is 300 knots just for the sake of pulling a number out. If at 400 knots, well, you're going to hit your G limit first, but at 200 knots, you're going to hit your AOA limit first. So Sunshine, why don't you straighten all that up? Because I'm sure I probably confused some folks or maybe, <laughs> maybe didn't. No, 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 dude, that was good. That was good. Okay. So uh, just to just to clarify a little, so corner, because if you look at the VN chart, that would be velocity and normal load factor. It is a corner kind of thing. It's an application of, uh, it's the intersection, excuse me, of the stall or lift line limit versus the structural aerodynamic limit. So Jello, you're absolutely right. It's the lowest airspeed at which max sustainable G's are, uh, sorry, what max G's are first available. So it's the lowest airspeed for the max G available. Okay. Absolutely. Cool. So you're 100% correct. All right. Well, let's, let's shelve this one otherwise until our next deep dive. Sunshine, I got one from you from Marcus from Germany. He wants to know, how was your final flight with the F-18? I mean, how was it technically? Was it like a basic mission or just a free flight to have some fun, doing loops and rolls? Was there any ceremony when you came back? In addition, how was it emotionally to fly this gorgeous machine, which you have flown so many years for the very last time, knowing <laughs> you will probably never be able to <laughs> fly it again? <laughs> oh, what was me? I washed up fire pilot. I, I, I can't <laughs> see through my tears, but I'm not making fun of you, Marcus. I'm making fun of me because there might have been a, a tear of, of sadness there. And that is exactly why the tradition exists of, quote unquote, wetting down the air crew on their last flight is to hide those tears. But Sunshine, I was reading. Why don't we start with you? And I witnessed your last flight, I think. You did. You did, Jello. So it was a lot of fun. So uh, firstly, they, they scheduled me for a Foxtrot, which, or I'm sorry, they scheduled me for a Delta, which was nice because uh, I don't always get to fly with somebody. So I got to fly with a guy that I knew back in S3s, call sign Enos. I'll just leave it at that. Great American. So he and I took off and we actually flew for a crowd of people who were part of my retirement ceremony. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of fun. I got to watch the startup, the takeoff and the um, very within rules, if you will, but I got to do a, a relatively dramatic takeoff and flew right over top of the crowd at a very, once again, very reasonable within regulations altitude and airspeed. <laughs> we went out to the warning area, which is just a designated airspace over the water, about 30 to 40 miles away from the coast. Uh-huh. And we turned around and we did a supersonic run at the, um, we did a supersonic run. I'll just leave it at that. So hopefully we can get rid of the preposition at there. But I did a supersonic run and I was able to throw the shockwaves toward the coast and the audience there at the retirement ceremony could actually hear the boom, boom. I heard it. And we had, and we had all oh, good. And we had actually coordinated that all over the radio. So the MC of the retirement ceremony kind of gave everybody a heads up. Hey, in a couple seconds, you're going to hear a boom, boom. And that's from sunshine. Nice. So it's kind of cool. How about your last flight, Jello? Well, hold on. Then you came into the break and you landed oh, and you okay. taxied right up to your ceremony where I think we got you a little bit wet and then you went straight into your retirement ceremony. So I would... I, it was. Yeah. I would, it was epic, man. It yeah. was a fantastic way to end a, a, a very fun career. I'll well, say that. and your wife and girls were there and you had a lot of friends there. So I was... P- proud to be a part of that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jello. I'm glad you were. Yeah, so. I had three last flights. <laughs> wow. Okay. How does that work? <laughs> well, we had an airplane that was at North Island that needed to be delivered to Miramar. And that was on a Saturday. And so my family okay. drove up there after I took off. And when I landed, it was the three of them. So not at all like yours. There was the three of them and Vern from episode three. And <laughs> Vern was smart enough to bring some stuff so my kids could hose me down. And nice. it wasn't a huge crowd, but it was very emotional for me over 3,300 hours in the F-18. And so that was on a Saturday. On Tuesday, I forget what you and Vern were doing, but someone said, Hey, we have an airplane that needs to go to Lemoore. You want to take it? And I said, heck yeah. <laughs> so, so I jumped Does in. Does the Pope and, uh, wear a funny hat? That's Absolutely. Right, that's right. So I flew it up. And the fun thing about that is anyone who's seen some of the videos I've posted on Instagram and elsewhere, they've seen that I've done some create your own low levels on the Sierra Nevada mountains at times. And so I kind of went over some familiar area around Mammoth and Lake Tahoe and just really savored it because the other one was just 
I kind of went over the water and flew a little bit, but I knew the family was waiting and I want to keep them waiting. But by the time I did the one over Mammoth and Lake Tahoe, that was just like closure. Beautiful. Yeah, closure for the soul. And I, <laughs> I landed in Lemoore and it was a little bit uneventful because nobody there really knew. I think I might have mentioned it to one guy. He's like, yeah, oh, this is my last flight after so many years, so many hours. I'm like, oh man, cool. I think he threw like a cup of water on me or something. And then, uh, uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. and then on Thursday, I want to say it was, or Friday, then there was one more aircraft. This, this was when we had to move some operations to Miramar. We don't have to bore everybody with why, but we, we had to move some operations and there was a jet up there already that I think maybe you were doing a delivery or Vern was busy. I don't know, but okay. they said, Hey, do you want to come do a pro B, which is a oh. f- post maintenance check flight where you're checking the engines. And this was like a lot 20 single seat aircraft, uh, sunshine. So this was like as good as it gets for a final flight. <laughs> so I went out over yeah. the water and, uh, went up to over 50,000 feet, had it to Mach 1.6, pulled a bunch of G's, did a bunch of stuff, did the check flight, came into the break at Miramar, which I felt, even though I was never based there, it just kind of felt, I don't know, kind of right with where Top Gun is from and Miramar and all that. Mm-hmm. And I came mm-hmm. into the break and shut it down and walked away and, thought to myself, okay, that surely has got to be it because I forget what was happening in a few days, but there was something, <laughs> yeah. oh, I was going on a Christmas leave, I think it was. And ah, okay. yeah, so that was December 13th. And yeah, to Marcus's point, it was very emotional, but it was spread out over a few days and you know, it's coming, thankfully. I mean, for the guys who do something stupid or have a mishap and they never know it's their last flight, that's one thing. But for me, I knew for years it was coming. And so I think I was ready and do I miss it? Sure. But you know, it, it just, everything comes to an end. Yeah, Jill, I'm with you. And my uh, my prep for that retirement ceremony, you know, it was several months and I just, I, I felt myself savoring every moment of it as oh, I planned yeah. it and then and then as I executed. And you brought up a great point of having your family, I know you had three last flights, but uh, <laughs> having your family being part of that, just uh, to me, it brought such closure, you know, to oh, that yeah. chapter in my life. So yep. and I absolutely love that time. Yeah. And I wanted my boys to be able to be there and, and know that this is it. It's a chapter that's closing. And so even though it wasn't the last flight, I was glad I had that opportunity. And thankful, yeah. thankfully, I was able to get out of my flight gear before they got me wet because a couple of days later I flew again. So, <laughs> but, And I think we like went out to sushi after that. So they loved it, of course. All right. How about, uh, let's see, let's move on to Yori. You want to do Yori? Yeah. You want me to ask you? Uh, No, I'll ask you, Joe. So Yori. So yeah, so Yori asks, have you ever stood on a Ready 5, Alert 5 Top Gun, he calls it? And if so, have you ever intercepted any Russian, Chinese, Iranian, or other aircraft from other countries? Yeah, I think what Yori's getting at is really we call it a Ready 5 or something, but... Wait, is that right? No, they call it ready on top gun. I think it's the alert seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and I we think call it's alert it alerts. seven, right? So, at yeah. any rate, they're basically synonymous. But we don't have alert five anymore. Once the F fourteen went away, now we have alert seven, and we stand it all the time in training. Sunshine, I can't remember too many times I stood alert seven for real. Because generally, we just try to stay away from any area like that where you might need to. I think maybe passing the Strait of Hormuz, we might have done it. I don't recall. But there was an Alert 15 I stood one time. And Alert 7 is where you're in the aircraft, electrical power is on it, your engines are not on, but you can start them up and get airborne theoretically in seven minutes or less. Sunshine, I was Alert 15 one time, which is in the ready room with my flight gear on, but kind of hanging open. And they come up on the 1MC and say, now launch the Alert 15 aircraft, initial vector 270. And it took me nice. a second. I'm like, wait, that's me. That's me. So <laughs> I grabbed my helmet bag and my helmet and ran upstairs. And dude, I was airborne in seven minutes. So Bravo, I, Yeah, dude. I thought that was pretty cool. By the time I got up there, they had already powered up the electronics. All I had to do was start the engine, strap in, and take off. And I intercepted a little two-engine, I, uh, what was it, Indian little patrol plane. And, you know, I don't think it really mattered, but someone on the ship maybe didn't know who it was or just wanted to make the point to all the neighbors that, hey, guess what? If you come towards us, we're going to come out and see what you are. And I've got a couple pictures of that. And we kind of, you know, came alongside, wagged our wings a little bit, escorted him around the area and then took off. And so 
yeah, for what was otherwise a no-fly day, I got a day trap out of it. So that was a lot of fun. I think for you, didn't we talk about this once before with your Pakistani <laughs> bear? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly right, dude. So it was an Indian uh, Tu-95M, I think, bear. So okay. Tupolov, yeah. So it was a good time. Yeah, joined up. And uh, the fun part of that, real quickly, just to rehash, was that I joined up on this guy. We have an international frequency on uh, uniform called Guard, right? I guess it's also on Victor, but on uniform, 2430. So joined up. We started chatting on that. And between his broken English, which I'm very impressed because that's his second language, and me, we're able to coordinate. And I actually took a picture of him waving at me from his aircraft. And then he sent me over the radio his Yahoo email address. And this was back in the <laughs> early 2000s. And then I indeed sent him the picture of him waving at me, if that makes sense. That's so cool. goes back to the whole idea of regardless of the, the, the flag that we wear on our shoulder, it's a, or all these pilots are pretty much cut from the same fabric, right? Oh, man. You know, speaking of that, just on a tangent, I love the stories that you see now of World War II opponents that are friends, like Japanese and Americans and German and Americans and Brits. It's it's cool because, you know, everybody does their duty. And as we've said before on this show, you don't revel in it, but you do what you have to do. And it's kill or be killed. But in mm-hmm. different circumstances and different ages later, we're so common that there are people, I read a story now about a guy who goes fishing with his Japanese pilot buddy. and they, No kidding. Yeah, they're, they're pals. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think we're all more or less the same. But unfortunately, the world is such that sometimes we have to do things that maybe we'd rather not do. And I assume it's the same for the ground guys because, I don't know, didn't at the end of World War One didn't they all climb out of their trenches and go hug each other? I mean, it's it's an awful world we oh. live in. And, and, but, it is. You know, that's, that, that's what I heard anyway. So, yeah. Pretty cool. Wow. Yeah, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. And that uh, I think when you're going into engagement, not that I ever did any kind of air to air for real, if you will, but you have to respect your opponent, right? So if you underestimate your opponent, you're probably going to die. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think Sun Tzu taught us something like that from a long time ago. But hey, dude, I think we have time for one more quick question. I'll read it to you if you don't mind. This is from Jesse Lotzbach. And he says, in the sim community, we hear a lot of feedback from real pilots who generally mention the lack of feel or feedback. My question is, how much do naval aviators, and I assume he means any aviators, but in this case, he's got us, how much do we rely on feel in flight? More specifically, if you're coming into the break at 400 knots during a case one pattern at the ship, can you pretty much feel where 4Gs is when braking into the downwind? Are you locked on the accelerometer in the HUD or using it as more of a reference to make sure you're nailing the proper G-load to get you to the proper position where you want to be before you come around to land? You want to take that one, Sunshine? Sure, Jesse. Great question. So it's seat of the pants feel, as we call it. So it is something that is an acquired skill, but uh, pretty much I felt coming in the break or if I'm doing any kind of pop maneuver for a, a dive bomb, if you will, that I could feel what roughly four G's was coming into the break. So I would not stare at the HUD by any means. And really in aviation going that fast, you can't stare at anything. You got to keep your scan going, right? So I would uh, roll up on knife edge on a wingtip and then pull. And you just kind of know, not only is the seat of your pants to the G that you feel on yourself, but it's also the tension in your forearm. So that stick force per G, uh, you're going to know pretty much how much to pull to uh, command, if you will, a four G turn. So, so sensing G's is very much a part of the flight. I would say, and I, I didn't stare at the G-meter that much. How about you, Jello? No, I agree with you. And there's one other thing, Sunshine, I bet you'll remember as soon as I say it, and that is the G-suit that we wear begins to inflate, I believe, at 4Gs. And so yep, once you call. feel some pressure there, you know where you are. But I would equate this to anything the listener does that maybe they haven't really stopped and thought about, but if they are good enough at it, whether it's a golf swing or a fly cast with a fly rod, that's you know, my equivalent of a golf swing, or anything that you do well, it could be an instrument, could be a tennis racket, you probably don't think about the little nuances and subtleties of how that you do it well. And I think it's the same thing for pilots. And that's why we are always pining for flight time is because you lose those little cues and feelings and sensory inputs that make you effective and safe because if you don't fly enough you forget where four g's or six g's or seven and a half g's are and remember our guests on the f-14 said there wasn't a g limit so they had to know what their g limit was and so not not to make this a political statement about give air crew more flight time but hey (laughs) but (laughs) but if you're in charge of the budget hey give air crew more flight time right but yeah you you just get there and you know it but the other thing though is sunshine I, i never really worried once i was more proficient on 
making the numbers work out to get to the exact perfect spot or the 180 for the carrier. After a while, I could look out and say, eh, the ship is about that big. So that makes sense. So yeah, you know, you, you just get to a point where you can start using Zen almost. I agree. It is. Uh, it starts out as a science where you're going to lean on numbers, right? It would be Gs, it would be airspeeds, it would be distances, uh, angles of bank, and then eventually it turns into more of an art, if you will. Absolutely jello. Gotcha. All right, dude. Well, gosh. All right, man. I thought I was tired before. Now I'm tired again, but I'm, I'm looking forward <laughs> to a little break. Hopefully the listener doesn't mind. And from the rest of this episode, we'll play again the aircrew interview, and you're going to have a turn on aircrew interview, aren't you? I will. I think mine's going to air sometime around the end of April. Cool. All right, Sunshine, anything else before we'll see everybody on April 12th? No, man, just to enjoy. I hope you're enjoying spring break. Hope you folks out there having a good time. And we absolutely love listener questions. So keep them coming and we'll keep trying to give you good answers. For sure. All righty, let's get to it. Looks like the first question is from John Ellis. He asks, what do you think of the F-35? Question mark combination of the best parts of the F-18 and F-16? Uh, no, John, I think it's better than the F-18 and the F-16. In fact, funny you should mention it, in three days' time, we will release an interview on our next episode that is with a pilot who has flown the F-15, the F-16, and the F-35, and we're titling that episode Fourth Generation versus Fifth Generation, and what the difference is between those two classes of fighters, if you will. And the F-35 blows the others away from the point of view of being a good long-range interceptor and fusing all the information that it has available to it. It might arguably not be quite as good of a dogfighter as the F-18, but hopefully if it does its job correctly, it won't need to dogfight and it could take care of all that before it gets into the visual arena. I know we've said that before in the Vietnam era, but I think the F-35 is a gigantic step up, and I think it's leaps and bounds ahead of where the F-18 and the F-16 were. You have to imagine that those were 70s technology originally, which has been modified in the decades since, but now F-35 is pretty much cutting edge. So good question, John. When did you start flying? I... Flew maybe once or twice as a young child in friends' airplanes if I was able to work out a ride. But I actually did not start really flying until I began flight school in the fall of 1993. I was 23 years old, and the Navy taught me everything I needed to know. And I've been pretty much flying ever since with a couple of years that I did take off between 2000, what was it, 2010, 2013-ish. Douglas Wheeler, uh, let's see, Douglas asks, big fan of the podcast, just wondering if you ever fancied trying a British aircraft and why? Uh, sure, I'd love to. Uh, that opportunity just never was available when I was in the military, Douglas, and now that I'm out, I don't know how I would have such an opportunity, but if it came along, sure, I'd love to. Uh, it'd be great, but I'm civilian now, so I, I don't know how that would come about. Paul Mooney, what would you say was the most challenging part of your training slash flying? Paul, for me, it was learning how to be a good enough one versus one instructor, 1v1 at Top Gun, not only flying it, but teaching it. I had a very difficult time getting through the flying syllabus, partly was due to the fact that we only had opportunities to do the instructor under training flights at certain times. And there were sometimes gaps in between. And so if there was a long enough gap, for whatever reason, just aircraft availability, then I would lose the proficiency I'd built up. And then once we got into it again, then I'd build it back up. And then maybe it was just close enough, not quite. And then I would have to take a break again. So it was just this weird cycle. I won't bore you with all the details, but it took me a little longer than normal to get through that phase of training because when you are a Top Gun instructor, they expect you to be the absolute expert at whatever it is you're teaching. There can be no mistakes, no flaws. If you do make a mistake later after you are an actual instructor, then they expect you to understand it and be able to teach to it and show why the mistake occurred and what you can do better next time, just like you should do for your students. So for me, that was one. At times, carrier landings were also difficult, but that's that's the uh, that's the answer that came to mind when you asked, Paul. Good question. Uh, let's see, Grayo1F asked, did I get my DCS flight set up yet? Uh, no, I did not. I don't really have room 
in my house or my life or my wallet for this right now. So <laughs> I appreciate that those of you who enjoy DCS are passionate about it. Um, it's something that for me doesn't quite hold the allure perhaps that it does for you because having done it for real, I not sure what I would do in DCS other than engage with all you people and enjoy that. And so, no, I, I have not yet set it up for those reasons. Sorry to say. Have I ever crashed on a carrier landing or had issues on a carrier? Uh, no, Space Dreams. I never crashed, thankfully. I did have issues. There was one particular night I had difficulty landing, not because of the ship or the sea conditions, but because of my own inability. I was relatively new at the time. I want to say I boltered about three times, and then I went up to aerial refuel, and when I came back down, I subconsciously said, okay, I don't want to bolter anymore. I better go lower, and of course, at the carrier, low is not good, so I was waved off twice and sent home for the night, yeah, but I came back out after that and did fine, so yes, that, that was the, thankfully, extent of my problems landing. How long did it take to be a natural at flying the ball, asks 409 Napalm. I can't answer that because it hasn't happened yet. And because I'm no longer flying the ball, 409 Napalm, I would have to say infinity. I was never a natural at it. To be fair, in the daytime, it got a little easier, but I was not consistently what they call top 10 ball flyer or top hook or anything like that. I had to work very hard at it and it never came naturally for me. John Ellis asks, did I use the joint helmet mounted queuing system with a FLIR pod in the F-18 or F-16? No, John, I personally never used the joint helmet anyway, but at Top Gun, where we fly the F-16 in the Navy, we did not use the joint helmet because we only used the F-16 for adversary flying, and it was never adapted to the older F-16As and Bs. There was a time I was becoming, I was being fit, I should say, for the visor. That's always the hard part, is they have to fit it around your face. And I forget what happened. Uh, at one point, something slowed us down, or maybe there was a timeout, if you will, with doing the new helmets. And for whatever reason, I never continued it. And by then, it was so late in my career, I just never ended up flying with it. So I can't speak knowledgeably to that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul Barrett, did you get the chance to go up against the F-22 at Top Gun? Not at Top Gun, Paul, but I did have a chance to fight it at an operation or exercise Northern Edge in Alaska one time, and it was an amazing aircraft. We did not do dedicated 1v1, but I, as an adversary, arrived at a merge with an F-22, and from my experience having fought other Navy aircraft and non-F-22 Air Force aircraft, for where I arrived with an offensive position, I should have been able to maintain that position. But the next thing I know, we had a neutral merge and he went flying by me. And to this day, I can't figure out how he did that. I know they have thrust vectoring and everything else. And I've never seen them live in an air show either. So uh, I'm, I'm still a little confused on how that happened, but a very impressive aircraft. And again, a plug for our upcoming episode, we will talk a bit about the F-22 in comparison to the F-35 on our next Fighter Pilot Podcast episode coming out on the 12th. From Maverick, do you consider being a fighter pilot more of a system operator kind of a job or flying? That's a great question, Maverick. When I came in, and it was still the end of the era, if you will, for what I like to call the big chest-thumping, manly, knuckle-dragging fighter pilots, there was more of just the pure flying and the bravado and a lot of what you would think of from people in the 70s and 80s, uh, tapering off in the early 90s. And now, if you ask me, the demographic of fighter pilots is changing. I think of them as more calculated, less boisterous, more professional, but to be fair, maybe less fun having but, of course, society has changed also, so you can't really have the type of shenanigans they used to have back then anyway. But it's definitely a different world and a different Navy. And so, in my experience, the young fighter pilots who came along after my generation were more calculating, thoughtful, more operators, and arguably a little more professional, and maybe even, dare I say, a little more effective. But... Again, that's the generation that they represent. So 
Um, yeah. All right. So someone here, Bad Badik Badik says, currently a patron. Thank you very much. That is how we keep the show going. We do have over a hundred patrons on our Patreon page. Uh, do you know where the Rhino nickname came from? Yes. Uh, from what I've been told, I forget who told me this, but they were trying to think of a name to use on the ball at the ship because you don't want to say Super Hornet Ball because if all the LSOs hear is super, or is, if they don't hear the super, if all they hear is the Hornet, then they could confuse it with the regular Hornet, which we'll call Hornet Ball. They needed something different, and I can't do it justice, but apparently one of the guys went home, one of the landing signal officers at the Fleet Readiness Squadron, and he came back the next day and he says, I got it, we'll call it the Rhino. And the commanding officer or somebody said, why are we going to call it the Rhino? And he said, because it's big, ugly, gray, and its legs rubbed together, or something like that. And so it is, if you look at an Hornet, and a Super Hornet next to each other from the backside. The Super Hornet does look like it's carrying a little more weight uh, in the hind quarters. And so that answer is stuck. And so that is what they decided to call the Super Hornet around the boat. And it's a nickname for it at all times. We, we say, hey, it's the Rhino. In the movie Clear and Present Danger, says Baddock, uh, the call sign of the paper bomb Hornet. Hold on, I got to make sure I read this right. Oh, yeah, Easy Rhino. Um, yeah, I don't know where that came from. So he's asking about clear and present danger when um, the character on the ground who's acting as the forward air controller, he's talking to the F-18 Hornet from VFA-125, and it is um, William Defoe. That's the name I'm trying to come up with. He, he He's using his call sign Easy Rhino, and that's, yeah, that's arbitrary. I don't think that has anything to do with the Super Hornet being called a Rhino. And even though you didn't ask it, Baddock, I don't know anything about cellulose-encased bombs. Never heard of any in my career. Uh, so Tim Oya or Oja asks, do you think operating modern fighters would be more effective if there was a second crew member? Well, Tim, it, I guess it doesn't really matter what I think, but since you're asking me, I will tell you. And I'm going to cop out and say it depends, because I never flew the F-35 or the F-22. But the fact that they've only built each of those aircraft single seat tells you something. I was single seat most of my career. Towards the end, I did have a chance to fly with many tactical Top Gun graduate Wizzos, and they were very effective. So I wasn't a convert. I didn't wish I'd gone back and flown two seat the whole time. And if I were to go to combat towards the end of my career, I'm not prepared to say I would have wanted or asked to go with a two seat. But that takes nothing away from them. They're very effective. And for me, it was just a question of experience and habit pattern. And I was used to doing things mostly by myself. But the few times I did fly with Top Gun graduate Wizzos, they were very effective. And I understand that certain missions, particularly Ford Air Controller Airborne, which I never did, but for that mission, it's great to have someone else, as it is for a lot of others. But that that's, that's a... Sticky one. I, I, I really can't answer that. But again, most fifth generation fighters, at least in the U.S., are single seat. So that tells you where the mindset is going. Yeah, someone said John Clark. That was William Defoe's character. Thank you. Yes, uh, John Ellis points out if they rig the cable wrong, it's really a bad thing. You can damage the aircraft if you rig it for a Hornet and you land a Super Hornet or vice versa. And that's absolutely true. That's why there are so many precautions in place to make sure that doesn't happen. Just looking at questions here. Uh, ever within visual range fought with A-10s? I've heard they can surprise fast movers. No, Terry Boyer, I never actually did have a chance to do that. I'm sure they could. They were built to be low and slow. And in a dogfight, being slow can be very helpful. And so, unfortunately, I never had that opportunity. But I appreciate the question. What are the pros and cons of being an ATP or airline transport pilot, airline pilot? Joe D777 asks. Well, the pros, this falls a little out of the context, so I'll make this quick. The pros are that they pay and pay relatively well and that you have free travel for your family. The cons are that the quality of the flying is pretty low. If you used to fly fighters, the people in the back don't really appreciate when you start doing 
heavy turns and pulling G's and all that, which I don't do. Don't worry. And so most pilots that I know of who fly airlines who also need to get their fix, well, they go fly biplanes or some other fun plane on the weekend. Uh, I don't do that partly because I don't have the money to do it, but also partly because I'm pretty much satisfied. That being said, I might start doing some civilian flying because my 15-year-old son, who wants to figure out a way to survive living in Hawaii as a surfer, I told him he should fly for Hawaiian Airlines. So he raised his eyebrows at that and thinks he wants to start taking flying lessons. So we'll see where that goes. Paul Barrett says, love the podcast we did with our wives. That's me and my co-host, Sunshine. Lucky guys to have lovely ladies at your sides. Totally true, Paul. We really enjoyed that one. And I thought they offered really good advice. In fact, I'm considering doing an encore episode with my sons. I think I would open it with my 11-year-old, probably just making silly sounds with a microphone in his hand, which is about the most I can expect. And then maybe I'll get my 15 and 18-year-olds to talk about what the home front was like like in their lives as military kids. So we might we might revisit the home front there. Thanks for that, Paul. Have you ever had an engine failure? You know, Space Dreams, this came up recently and I'm embarrassed to admit I don't remember. I know I there's one time I can remember I was doing a post-maintenance check flight and I shut off an engine. We used to do that in the F-18. They don't do it anymore. But I shut it off in flight and it wouldn't restart. So that's kind of like a failure. But thankfully I was in uh, Fallon, Nevada. And so I didn't have to land on the carrier, but I did have an engine uh, stall on me one time, but I think it was okay at idle. And I don't think otherwise I've had an engine failure. And the fact that I don't remember if I did means it did not end dramatically or else I'm sure I would have a more pointed memory of it or poignant maybe. So I, I'll have to go back and see in my logbooks if I made comment to that, but I don't recall having an actual engine failure at an inopportune time. Tim Sears asks, is there going to be a time when the UAV platforms on manned aerial vehicles will reduce or eliminate fighter pilots? Some plans are exceeding, uh, planes I assume you mean, are exceeding the physiological capabilities of pilots. Uh, yes, Tim, we will again discuss this very briefly on this upcoming episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Theoretically, someday. In my lifetime, no. In yours, I don't know how old you are, but if you're listening to this, you're probably at least 15. Probably not. It's hard to say. Again, I've used the example on a podcast before that when you look back at the mid 80s, if you were around and you watched Back to the Future, that they showed about this time frame as the future, quote unquote, in the 80s. And for what they thought we would be, we're nowhere close to that. So I, I don't know. We don't have flying cars. We don't have a lot of different things that maybe we should have by now. So I don't know how long it will take for UAVs to replace manned aircraft. But I think at some point it's coming, probably. Uh, Badjik wants to know if Sunshine is as handsome in real life as he is on Facebook Live. He's a certainly a good-looking guy, and I don't mind saying that because I'm confident in my own sexuality. And so, yeah, he's a good-looking dude. And Next time, Mike, as a matter of fact, I mentioned to him, Mike, uh, that you invited me to do this. And I said, you should do it sometime. And he said he'd be willing. So the viewer can decide for themselves who's better looking. I've got my wife. I'm happy. So I'm confident in how I look. So no contest. He beats me. And you all can decide that on your own. Ever operated in the high north like northern Norway? If so, anything experience of real cold weather flying? Uh, I did fly north of the Arctic Circle on that same exercise I mentioned when I was in Northern Edge in uh, Alaska, and we had to wear some cold weather clothes in case we went down, but because it was an exercise, they had four detached helicopters in different places, and the idea was they would be able to rescue us quickly if we had ejected. So never operated in Norway, Corpen, and never had to do really any other super cold weather stuff. Miko, who I see on my show from time to time, have you ever worked with pilots from other F-18 user countries, Canada, Australia, Kuwait, Finland, etc.? Yes, Miko, we did operate with the Canadians a bit and the Australians. I know some of my peers flew or instructed with the Kuwaitis. I never did, but uh, no, I don't know any Finnish pilots either, so... No, not as much as I wished I had, but as I understand it, or the Swiss, uh, but as I understand, they're all very good pilots. 
so Maverick asks, and I just answered this earlier, do I do any flying just for fun, small planes, aerobatics? No, sorry to say I really don't. I like to fly fish. That's my thing right now. And I've got a motorcycle, so it's kind of like flying on two wheels. But no, I really don't. And again, part of that is we purchased a home recently in an expensive part of California, which is already expensive. And so we have a little lack of disposable income for such activities right now. But that is why I recently moved to a bigger airplane in my airline capacity. I was trying to make a little more money. And so who knows, maybe if the podcast continues to grow, maybe I will at that point have the financial means to go do a little flying. And again, if my son wants to, I'll have to figure out a way to do it with him. Jude Mai, Mal, I'm not sure, asks, is there anything you wanted to accomplish in your career that you haven't, but it would be your dream? Not really, Jude. I've answered something like this before as far as what did I not do in the F-18 or F-16? Well, only two things, shoot somebody down and eject. And from what I understand, I don't really want to do either one of those anyway. So it would be fun maybe to fly some of the older Warbirds, Spitfires, uh, Mustangs, the Lightning, the P-38, and some of those older aircraft. Maybe it'd be fun to race in the uh, Reno Air Races or do something along those lines. But again, I have to be realistic. I have three school-aged children at home, two are in high school, and there's only so much time and so many means, resources to do different things like that. So no, I'm actually quite content. Thank you. Uh, Paul reattacks on the UAV thing. He says, do you see a time when a fighting jet will launch a wingman drone off his jet to protect him in a dogfight or as an escort? I think just based on the physics, Paul, that might be tough to launch him off of his aircraft. We do already have two decoys that sort of have this purpose. I think more likely it would be that they launch together as separate aircraft and the thing just stays right there with you all the time like a well-heeled dog. Whether that'll come or not, I don't know. And then at some point, you could have it, instead of flying five or 10 feet away from you, no matter what you do, maybe 100 or 300 feet away and be more of a beacon than you. I, I don't know. Um, that sounds like cool stuff, but from what I understand from our upcoming episode, Nobody's really planning on making that just yet. Uh, Joe D triple seven says, "Do you did you ever do dissimilar air combat training against the Dassault Rafale or Eurofighter Typhoon? If so, how did it go? And what was impressed? What impressed you most about them?" No, unfortunately, I did not. Paul or Joe, excuse me. I'm sure it would have been very humbling. I hear those are very good aircraft and very capable in a within visual range fight, but. No, never had that opportunity. At Top Gun, when I was there a couple times, the grad 1v1, as they call it, is a big fun exercise where everybody shows up in the room. No matter what you fly, you have a big brief for everybody, and they go over all the training rules, and then they hand out envelopes, and you show up at a certain spot of the range at a certain time, at a certain altitude, on a certain frequency, and you fight whoever's there. And in doing that, I was once able to fight an F-5, an F-16, a T-45, which was a lot of fun, and a tornado. And so all those times was a lot of fun, but never had a chance to fight anything real exotic like an F-22 or F-35. The F-35 was just coming out when I retired, or any of the foreign aircraft, or the A-10, as we talked about before. So no, never had a chance to do that. Let's see, Space Dreams, what was it like flying the F-16, and have you ever done a display or fly pass? Uh, it was fantastic, Space Dreams, and no, I never had a chance to do a fly pass or demo, but the visibility in that, plus, you know, in an F-18, you have the canopy bow right here, and it does occlude part of your vision. In the F-16, it's all just one clamshell that comes down, and you have this wonderful view in front of you, and the way you're sitting, you're up in front of the aircraft and you've just got this wonderful field of view. You feel literally like you're on the tip of a rocket and you're just being hurled through space and it's a wonderful feeling. And I did have one over Mach 1.9 one time. We don't take them up, uh, the Navy doesn't, as high as they once did. I think they used to go up to 60, 70,000 feet. But due to environmental control system problems they've had recently, they're now limited into the 
mid thirties, I want to say 30,000 feet range. So, uh, but just flying fast and flying an F-16 was a lot of fun. So I have respect for people who spend their entire careers flying the fighting Falcon. Richard Edwards, dude, F-35, what do you know about it? Does it beat everything else out there? So Richard, you're going to need to listen to the episode coming up on January 12th on the Fighter Pilot Podcast called Fourth Versus Fifth Generation Fighters. And our guest will talk about the F-35. So I'm going to punt on that one and uh, he'll talk a little bit about it. On that note, though, we are starting soon a series on the podcast where every episode will have a different featured aircraft. For example, tomorrow we're recording, of course, the F-18 first. And I have other aircraft lined up. I've got a guest ready to talk about the A-7 Corsair. I have a guest lined up to talk about the SR-71. And so for each aircraft, we will ask the same six or seven questions. What was it designed to do? What does it do well? What armament does it carry? What are the different variants, etc.? And then we'll have a chance for the guest to answer some maybe extra questions or tell some sea stories. And so you'll have to wait on that one. We will uh, we'll get to the F-35 as part of that series, hopefully very soon. Uh, so Henzi Dent said, would you go flying in the F-16 or F-18 if your mission data card failed and you couldn't load the flight plan? It depended on the aircraft, Hansy. Sometimes you had to have it for the radar to know how to do what it needed to do. And other times it was a mild inconvenience and you could type in what you needed. So yes, for the most part in my career, if the card didn't work, you could still go flying. And with some rare exceptions, certain systems would uh, limit you from doing that. Do you suffer many holdovers, i.e. waiting in between the courses on the way through the fast jet pipeline? It comes and goes, Adrian. The example I sometimes use is shark fish populations or any predator prey population example, where when there's too many of one, let's say too many prey, then what happens? Well, the predators can all overproduce and multiply because there's so much food. But when there's so many predators, then they eat all the prey and there's not enough food. So some of them die off. So you end up with this accordion effect. And it's the same thing in flight school. At least it was when I went through. Sometimes they're rushing people through. Other times there's these delays and it takes time to get through. So it just comes and goes. And I can't really say much more than that. Uh, I know the process of getting a call sign, but tell the others how one gets a call sign. It's a funny process. For sure, Romper 86, you show up in flight training as a student and they'll give you something to call you just for fun or you might even give yourself one, but it usually doesn't stick. Once you get to your first squadron, at least in the Navy, this is my experience, you show up and depending on many things, your name, number one, a recent funny movie, number two, or something you look like, or someone you look like, or gosh, what else is there? Something maybe you've done either right when you checked in or before you checked in or within the first month or two of checking into your squadron, that will dictate what they call you. So in my case, I showed up looking a little bit Italian, I guess, which I am half Italian. And so they started calling me Chachi. And then at one point, Aiello, Jello, Aiello, it just had a good ring to it. So that's what they called me. Thankfully, my call sign crack from flight school, which was based on a momentary indiscretion at a party with a pair of ill-fitting pants. I'll leave it at that. Uh, That didn't stick and neither did putting the wrong type of fuel in our rental car in Amsterdam. So I didn't end up as diesel or anything else. Uh, Enough on that. And so it just depends. Some guys get one because of silly things they do, uh, whether it's on Liberty or in the airplane. Others just because a movie comes out and the movie Farva, uh, sorry, the movie um, Super Troopers, well then Farva is an easy one to give someone because when you drink too much or have a certain resemblance to the character or just are a little uncouth, maybe that is an easy call sign to get. And I had two guests on the show, both in the same generation, came into the Navy, at least into their squadrons, about the time that movie came out. And so that was the call sign they ended up with. All right. I appreciate, by the way, all the people saying thank you and love it and all that. I I appreciate that. For the interest of time, I won't read all those comments because I don't want to sit here and stroke my own ego. 
Uh, I saw a video recently that showed pilots falling asleep after a mission. Is that a thing? Sure, as long as you're safe on deck, not in the airplane. I uh, don't know of too many people who have fallen asleep in the airplane. That being said, I have a picture of me looking like I'm asleep in the airplane, but it was staged. Uh, and, and another one I have that looks like I'm asleep was taken from the guy next to me on the flight deck of the carrier. We were waiting for the launch, and I had 15 minutes, so I just looked a little bit like, okay, this is boring, but I wasn't asleep. All right, Mobius, um, all-time favorite airplane. Depends, you know, uh, from what point of view. I used to love the SR-71 as a kid. thing was awesome, and it was taboo. You couldn't hear about it hardly. And then we used to love the F-5 because my brothers and I built models of it. And then I started flying, and it wasn't quite as capable. No ill will intended to my F-5 friends, but it was relatively easy in a dogfight, so it lost a little of its luster for me, but still a fun-looking little airplane. F-18 is probably my go-to favorite because that is where I spent the majority of my career, although I do have an affinity for the A-10 with its huge gun and the F-16 since I had a chance to fly it a little bit. So I'm going to punt on that one, or, or I guess I'll say F-18. Jello, if not classified, well, you, you don't have to say that because if it is classified, I'm just not going to answer. But anyway, what sort of targets would you expect to engage with the M61A2 gun? Ever shoot up tanks, APCs, or is it strictly air-to-air or soft skin stuff? Cheers from James. Uh, targets for the gun in the air-to-air or other aircraft or anything you need to shoot down, really, because if it flies, it's generally soft enough, if you will, that it will be affected by 20 millimeter bullets impacting it. On the ground, you won't have quite as much impact on heavily armored vehicles or buildings, uh, soft-skinned vehicles, aircraft, troops in the open, all those are fair game. And no, I never strafed any targets in anger, certainly did plenty in training. So nope, didn't have a chance to do that. Uh, Daniel McAfee asks, have I ever had a chance to train with the Royal Canadian Air Force? If so, do you know Rose? He's a friend of mine. Uh, Thanks, Daniel. No, I don't know Rose. My training with other countries was limited to joint exercises. I never had a chance to go to Maple Flag, but I did have a chance to just rub elbows with different pilots at different for example, if they came and did exchange tours with the U.S., or if we met in various headquarters, like in Al-Udid, in the Arabian Gulf area, uh, Qatar specifically. So, uh, no, my experiences with other militaries were fairly limited, but for the most part, I found they were all very professional. We we're all, I think, cut from the same cloth, just from different countries. What's considered a good pilot amongst fighter pilots? Charles Howard, that might be one of the best questions I've had in a long time. Thank you. Not to say everyone else's questions are bad, but that is a really thought-provoking question. And I would say what is considered a good pilot is a couple things. I'll just ramble them off in no particular order. Situational awareness is a big one. Knowing where you are compared to where your body thinks you are and what is happening around you. That's a big one. Number two, motor skills. Your ability to finally control something like the stick and throttle and to do it with such precise inputs that you are very effective at whatever it is you're doing, whether it's bombing a target or landing on the carrier. Having a healthy level of confidence, but not an ego or arrogance. Being teachable, being able to teach without coming across as arrogant and being approachable by young people who want to aspire to this, thinking about others and not necessarily not thinking too much about yourself. Again, some confidence is required in your skills, but maybe putting others before yourself, being willing to lend a hand when something needs to be done and not thinking anyone or anything is below you because the 18, 19-year-old plane captain who is getting your aircraft ready, well, you might think that you're above that person, but if they don't do their job, you can't do yours. So having a respect for your fellow humans, having a respect for the enemy, being a studious person who studies, whether it's your own aircraft or the enemy's aircraft, and I could probably go on and on, but those are definitely, I would say, some traits of a good fighter pilot. Ever thought about writing your flying autobiography? There's a large market for such memoirs. You know, Adam, I have started thinking about that. 
if I do it, I want to make sure that it's not just me saying, hey, look, then I flew this and then I did that. And wow, it was cool. And aren't you jealous? I would like to have a point to it. And I am kicking around some ideas. I do have a Captain Miller story in me I haven't shared with everyone yet. And what I mean by that is if you remember the movie Saving Private Ryan, part of the movie is that they don't know what Captain Miller was back home. And he waits until a certain time to tell everybody that he was a teacher. And I don't think I could recreate quite the drama there. But there's there's one thing that I haven't shared yet that someday when I do, I hope I can use it as an example to continue to fight for something and to persevere through challenges and setbacks. And so if I do it, I might use that as the theme to try to inspire or motivate people, but we'll see. Can RAF pilots take part in Top Gun? If so, can they stay on to become an instructor? I don't think so yet, Paul. I think they're working on that. There are certain higher level classifications that occur at Top Gun with some of the training they do that, as I understand, is still US only, but I I'm not totally sure. I know when I talked to my buddy Grand, who used to be the boss over there at Top Gun, he said they were looking at it and they were trying to get a couple first instructors in from, I want to say, maybe Australia for starters, but possibly Canada too. I'm not sure. So I think they're working on that. Uh, So Romper86 says he had the opportunity to fly, I assume he, a P-51 with his great uncle still living, who was a Tuskegee Airman in some actual stick time. Well, I am jealous. So thanks for that. And uh, th- yeah, that's, that's awesome. All right. So this is, I guess, as good a one as any. Tim Sears asked, have you ever departed from normal flight? Yes, I did, Tim. I was in a dogfight in an offensive position on my skipper, actually, the commanding officer of Top Gun at the time. He was practicing his defensive. I was practicing offensive. And he did what we call a ditch, which is when, and I've got to get the fighter pilot hands out, everybody, but when you have one aircraft that is defensive and if he just stays defensive, he's going to get shot. And so what does he do? He redefines the fight straight down. And what I did is I rolled on top to follow and I must have had some forces, side forces building up. And instead of following him down, the aircraft literally rolled up and yawed away 180 degrees. And it was quite uh, thrilling to say the least. And so I simply released the controls. I called knock it off right away. And by the time I released the controls and took a deep breath or two, the aircraft quickly came out of it and I was able to fly away just fine. That is why we do dogfighting up at high altitude. But I did not end up in any sort of spin or prolonged departure. But yes, that definitely did get my attention. So I want to say thank you to everybody for the excellent questions. Mike, I'll go mute here and uh, turn it over to you to wrap up. 